to Media Shift Podcast, episode 242, your guide to the digital media revolution. I'm Mark Glazer. In the news this week, many publishers have been pivoting to video, but they've also lost a lot of traffic to their websites. Did they go too far? And Twitter is testing out doubling the size of tweets to 280 characters, and users are upset that Trump might get a supersized megaphone. The Knight Foundation puts $4.5 million into seven projects aiming to restore trust in media and convenes an all-star commission in trust, media, and democracy. Can they make a difference? Our metric of the week is audience shrinkage, and I'll go one-on-one with Deb Roy, co-founder of social venture Cortico and chief scientist at Twitter, to talk about his efforts to use AI and analytics to create healthier public discourse, all on this week's MediaShift podcast. Is your life ruled by FOMO, fear of missing out? Check out MediaShift's digital ed online trainings to keep your skills up to date. We have trainings coming up on five tech tools to improve your reporting and how to create a community-centered newsroom. Check them out and sign up today at bit.ly slash digital ed now. That's bit.ly slash digital ed now. Now the big news in digital media this week. First up, all pivots to video are not created equal. Many publishers have made big pivots to video, slashing editorial staff and hiring video people in an effort to capture more video advertising but some of them have had to deal with difficult drops in traffic after those pivots. In less than two years, Mike.com lost 15 million unique visitors per month after pivoting according to Comscore numbers. FoxSports.com may have lost 88% of its web traffic after a similar pivot according to Awful Announcing. And Vocative lost 3.8 million unique visitors in a year. Digital media strategist Heidi Moore writes in CJR that the cautionary tale for Mike could help save online journalism if others learn the lesson. She gives four reasons why she thinks the pivot has failed. Faulty metrics, too much trust in distribution platforms, low quality video production, and an inability to turn video views into ad dollars. But the reason many publishers pivot to video isn't to get more page views, but to bring in more ad revenues via video ads which pay more than typical banner ads. And yet, BuzzFeed and Vox have started running programmatic banner ads after betting the house on native ads, which were more difficult to scale. Both of them have seen better results in pivoting to video, likely because they put more investment into the video quality. BuzzFeed's Shani Hilton wrote that they've had success in their integration of video into entertainment and news content. She said that BuzzFeed approached adding video with two things in mind. We only marry text and video when it makes sense, and we use reporting for both. Mashable also made news by laying off staff and pivoting to video, and while traffic has gone down, they say that revenues were up 36%. The Wall Street Journal reports that Mashable might be sold to a German broadcaster or to Viacom. In the end, all pivots to video are not created equal. Next up, Twitter doubles the size of tweets to 280 characters. This is a small change, but a big move. That's how Twitter's Jack Dorsey is characterizing 
the social platform's move to expand the size of tweets. Twitter said it will test a 280 character limit for tweets, double the 140 character limit that it's had for the past 11 years. Back then, the character limit was in place because of SMS limitations with a restriction of 160 characters. Twitter said the strict character limit was a barrier to encouraging more people to use the service and previously allowed people to add images without using up characters. Twitter had considered allowing longer tweets before, up to 10,000 characters, but nixed that idea following public outcry from users. Of course, people have been finding ways to work around the character limit using pictures, memes, and of course, the tweet storm, with many tweets strung together. So how did Twitter users react to the news? Most of them hated the idea of people writing longer tweets and appreciate the brevity of the service. As one user said, I truly hope the company is spending as much time on combating racism, harassment, and bots as it is on this. It doesn't seem like it. And the big incentive for Twitter is to get more people tweeting more. User growth has slowed and the company's stock has swooned. It's a risk to move away from what made Twitter so great, but it's a company that needs to take risks. But Curtis Silver wrote on Forbes that the move was another nail in the coffin for conversation. He wrote that either through our lack of national discourse, reactionary nature, hate speech trolling, inability to research, and inflammatory posting, conversation is dying. This is just another can of kerosene on the flame. Finally, the Knight Foundation puts $4.5 million into projects to restore trust in the media. Let's face it, there's a deep lack of trust in the media right now. There are a lot of reasons for this. We, the media, make a lot of mistakes. People consume personalized news feeds. There's a fractured media landscape, and people are susceptible to misinformation. But the Knight Foundation is trying to turn the tide by giving out $4.5 million to projects that address the issue of declining trust in media. About half those funds will go towards seven different organizations, among them Duke University's Reporters Lab, First Draft News, and the AP, each addressing the issue in a different way. Cortico, for example, will be a new platform that will help news organizations to surface and tell stories that resonate across the fragmented landscape. The rest of the money will be used to assemble and support a new Knight Commission on Trust, Media, and Democracy run by the Aspen Institute, which includes wide-ranging notables such as Kickstarter's Perry Chen, Google's Richard Gindris, and Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy. With $2 million in funding, the commission will meet next month at the New York Public Library and convene more times throughout the next year. Knight Foundation President for Journalism Jennifer Preston said that one of the hopes is that the commission will help inform policy decisions, funding decisions, grant-making decisions, and inform the public about what might be potential solutions to address the falling trust in our society in major democratic institutions. It's a worthy goal and a big investment of money, but hopefully the public will also buy into the idea of restoring trust in institutions that they can barely tolerate. Here's some other stories we're following. The Washington Post now has more than 1 million digital subscriptions. 
two public media execs are studying the possible effects that self-driving cars might have on radio listening. Comcast unveils a skinny bundle for broadband users that might be used as a way to get millennials into pay TV. The Financial Times uncovers a vast network of ad fraud that costs the publisher $1.3 million a month. We'll be back with the Metric of the Week after the break. Join us at MediaShift's 5th Journalism School Hackathon at the University of North Texas near Dallas-Fort Worth. The focus will be on sports and health, and we'll have teams of journalism students, faculty, and professionals from around the country. Learn more at bit.ly slash hackunt. That's bit.ly slash hackunt. Next up is our metric of the week. Each week we'll talk about a metric term or number and try to explain it to you. This time our metric of the week is audience shrinkage. Joining us is our metric shift editor, Jason Alcorn. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Doing well. So we talked about the pivot to video at the top of the podcast, so let's dive a little bit deeper. Are audiences really shrinking for publishers who laid off editorial staff in favor of video? Yeah, well, kind of. Uh, The headline that caught my attention and and yours and everyone else's is is that according to Comscore, publishers who pivoted to video this summer have seen a 60% drop in traffic to their websites. So uh, Mike, for example, the website Mike.com, their monthly audience has fallen from a high of 21.5 million visitors, that was December 2015, to just 6.6 million uh, this last August. And so take away the writers and the audience vanishes, that's, that's the story, that's the headline, and it caused you know, no small amount of schadenfreude on media Twitter, who are very happy to see this. But we need to unpack those numbers before we can really, I think, say anything about whether the pivot to video is, is good or bad or somewhere in between. Yeah, the CJR story about it, you know, being a big failure and, you know, Mike is this terrible lesson. It's not quite as simple as that. What, what's the rest of the story? The argument that Mike and others like it make is that owned and operated properties, O&O, matters less to advertisers than it used to. Uh, They point to steady and even growing reach when you include Facebook video, which Comscore unfortunately doesn't in their metrics. And from that point of view, sure, it actually makes sense. And you would expect that a website's page views are dropping if you're investing elsewhere. And if your CPM is high enough, if your ad rates are high enough on video, and they are a lot higher on video, you might actually come out ahead financially. Uh, Mike's publisher even called Facebook video a blind spot for Comscore and kind of dismissed it as irrelevant as a result. So if you believe, and Mike very much does, that social platforms are the future of the media business, uh, not you know owned and operated websites, these numbers just really aren't the indictment of the pivot to video that some make them out to be or, or want to make them out to be. Yeah, so it sounds like you think there's still a there there and 
where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, I, I do. You know, remember that the Allura video was and still is the huge, just the absolutely enormous number of views that publishers were racking up, particularly on Facebook, paired with that higher uh, potential CPM. And you know, we know those metrics turned out to be fake. Facebook was using a, a three-second view that you know, inflated view counts by a huge amount. Uh, through the first half of this year, they continued to admit to overcounting metrics tied to their advertising. And what this reveals to me more than anything else is that there's this old world of Comscore, which is independent of any platform, and advertisers uh, know that they can trust it as a result. Advertisers can decide where they want to put their spend using neutral third-party data. And then there's this brave new world of proprietary metrics, and it's really dangerous for anyone who can't look inside. Most definitely. Well, thanks for explaining that, Jason. Anything to plug today? A couple things. The next training that we have coming up is on design thinking and how to use innovation to grow your media business. Uh, it's free, but space is limited, and we're filling up. You can sign up at bit.ly slash designthinkrob. That's bit.ly slash designthinkrobb. Our uh, instructor is Rob Montgomery, and he's great. And sign up for our Media Metrics Roundup that comes out every Wednesday morning at metricshift.org. You can sign up for that. Great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Jason. Always fun to be here. Thanks, Mark. Media Shift is teaming up with the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University to present another Hack the Gender Gap Women's Hackathon. The theme this year is diversifying AI. With the rise of artificial intelligence, how can we be sure it serves a diverse population? Learn more at bit.ly slash hackwvu. That's bit.ly slash hackwvu. Register next week to get early bird rates. Guest this week is Deb Roy, director of the MIT Media Lab's Laboratory for Social Machines. He's an associate professor at MIT, co-founder of social venture Cortico, and chief media scientist at Twitter. He leads research at MIT at the intersection of human and machine communication, advises tech startups, serves on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. Welcome to the show, Deb. Thank you. So before we get into your current work with the nonprofit Cortico, let's go back a little bit to a project you did at MIT called the Human Speech Elm Project. You installed video monitors throughout your home and filmed the first few years of your son's life to track how he learned words. Tell us how that went and what you learned. Sure. We were um, interested specifically in acquisition of words, and we had extensive recordings of both the speech in the environment, you know, in my son's environment at home, and also as he started to talk, you know, all of his speech or most of his speech captured. And so what we were able to do is identify uh, up until his second birthday, which is where the, the study focused, every time my son first produced a new word, we could identify that moment, we call those word births, and then because we had extensive recordings going back in time, for every word birth we could do a kind of traceback operation and look at every time my son was exposed to that word, that he heard that word, and look at the context in which he heard it. So in, in sort of 
plain English, I might call it, if you have certain repeated patterns of interaction in, in the home, um, so there's structure or pattern, a certain kind of interaction around mealtime or a certain kind of uh, pattern uh, you know, before going to bed, where the pattern is repeated, but it's unique compared to all other patterns in everyday life. It turns out that those contexts are the most conducive, the most supportive for learning new words. And so that was an example of something that we learned uh, through data. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I know you did a TED talk on that that was that was really popular. Now that your son's older, is he happy to have all that video of himself from, well, <laughs> from when he was little or is he, is he upset at all? Um, if anything, it's my, uh, he's now 12. It's now my 10-year-old daughter who once in a while says, hey, where's my TED talk? So, uh, <laughs> that'll have to be later, I guess. The first one always gets the most attention. That's true. So you eventually helped start Bluefin Labs at MIT and turn your focus to social media analytics, and especially how people were commenting and reacting to, to TV shows and TV content. What did you learn from that experience? It was the machine learning algorithms we're using to analyze um, the speech data where we were looking, uh, building machinery to actually discover connections between speech and visual content that led to Bluefin because the same underlying idea of what we call cross-modal learning, one modality is speech, another modality is the visual context in which the speech is occurring. We were able to apply to make a bridge between broadcast television content, that's the visual content, and publicly visible comments on social media. Um, so public Facebook and primarily Twitter data. So in Bluefin, what we did is we said, well, let's just take this idea of building a machine learning system that essentially watches TV and listens to social reactions, um, and let's scale it up, and let's build a machine that essentially watches all of TV in, in America. What it really meant was tracking where every television program and every ad broadcast and all the major cable networks uh, that were airing nationally. So we had machinery that was tracking all content on television and using that knowledge of what's on TV to anticipate uh, if someone was to tweet about it or post about it, what are the likely bits of language, hashtags, ca cast character names, uh, if it was a sporting event, you know, the, the language of, of touchdowns and fumbles and so forth. We had models for how we would expect someone to speak if they were reacting to what was on TV. So that combination of knowing what's on and knowing how people would react let us comb through you know billions of comments online and find those that were being um, sparked sort of the uh, the remarks being um, uh, driven by television content that allowed us to create a really a, a new way to understand audience engagement both in terms of what were the uh, we started calling them remarkable moments moments that drive remarks so what were the most remarkable moments uh, within a program and across different networks and what were the networks of people, the, the kind of audience networks that were behind those comments? What, were the, what was the structure of the connections between audiences for different um, programs? Now, all of this, as you might imagine, if you're in the television industry, if you make content or if you're an advertiser for television, it opened up a new window into understanding the um, you know audience and kind of audience engagement. Um, and you know, fundamentally, it was it was really opening up a window into qualitative, a deep transformation in the relationship between content producers um, and consumers where audiences, roughly speaking, for television have been siloed. 
you know, so you have audience members each watching the same content, but watching apart. And the internet um, and social media transform that siloed collection of audience members into an audience network. And um, the, the dynamics of producing content and distributing content to an audience network is fundamentally different than an audience, a siloed audience. So we honestly kind of stumbled into this space. I mean, we began with research on child development and machine learning algorithms uh, and led to this uh, service, which television broadcasters and advertisers um, saw a lot of value in. And eventually it led to um, Bluefin Labs being acquired by uh, Twitter. And a lot of these capabilities then got um, uh, applied at scale across the Twitter platform. So as you said, you sold Bluefin to Twitter in 2013 and you became the chief scientist at Twitter. What does that entail exactly? What kind of stuff are you doing for them? Yeah, so my role was chief media scientist. I was, I think, officially the first part-time employee at Twitter because I was on a long leave. I was CEO of Bluefin, but I was actually on leave from my faculty position at MIT. So the um, acquisition, I, I would say the more accurate way of putting it is not that um, we sold our company to Twitter, but Twitter acquired our company. It was a... Uh-huh. It was a good outcome for us, but a um, uh, something where what we were doing fit strategically into Twitter's uh, longer-term goals. My role as chief media scientist has evolved uh, a lot over, it's been now four and a half years. At this point, it's uh, an advisory role. I'm you know, spending the majority of my time now in uh, directing my lab at MIT, which Twitter has been very supportive, uh, giving us access to uh, Twitter data and providing funding to establish this lab. And I advise a, uh, a data science team, uh, which grew out of the um, Bluefin team uh, within Twitter. So it's an a, sort of an advisory role tied to strategy and really focused on sort of data science and machine learning uh, applied within the company. So tell me more about Cortico now. This is a new startup that you're doing with analytics. Tell me more about the goals for that. Sure. So Cortico was formed a year ago, uh, along with uh, myself, Eugene Yee, and uh, Russell Stevens, our co-founders. Maybe just to give you a little bit of context where Cortico grew out of, it's um, unique in that it's being incubated at MIT. So just to give you a, a little sense of uh, why, where it comes from. I think it'll help understand what Cortico is. Um, at the Lab for Social Machines, which was you know, established, uh, I guess, about three and a half years ago now, one of the first research projects at MIT that we took on was where, actually, there's a, a direct line back to Bluefin. So Bluefin Labs, I actually left out one, one thing about Bluefin, although we tried to build a comprehensive capability that linked social media to, uh, to all of television. There was one carve out. We did not work on news um, because by its very nature, you can't predict, oh, given a news program, how people will talk about it because the, you know, by definition, the content keeps changing. So our technology didn't apply to news. And so when we came back to MIT, we said, let's tackle news. Let's figure out how to build algorithms to make sense of the connections and the patterns across how people are talking about current issues and news and how they are being reported upon by mainstream media. And this is going back three years, we needed a good event that we knew was coming up because you can't boil the ocean and do all the news. Um, what's an event that's likely to give off a good amount of signal? And we said, well, how about the 
2016 presidential election. That's still a couple of years away. Gives us some time to build up the technology, and um, there should be some good conversation signal coming out of that that event. Um, <laughs> little did you know. Little did we all know. So we started a, a project, and uh, about a year into building some of the analytics capabilities where we wanted to track, uh, in particular, where we knew there'd be a lot of coverage of the horse race, we came up with this phrase, the horse race of ideas, that um, although personality always is a big piece of the conversation around elections, we wanted to really focus in on conversations around the issues, national security or immigration or gun control, to understand how were the issues being discussed in social media, um, how are they being covered in uh, the mainstream media, and what was the relationship uh, between them. We're interested, are there areas, issues, uh, or even um, sub-issues that were getting disproportionate attention you know, uh, amongst uh, people talking about it and not being covered in the same way um, by mainstream news or, or vice versa, and other questions like that. And as we were proceeding with that work, the Knight Foundation learned that we were doing this research and approached us, approached our lab, and said, you know, in addition to doing this as an academic exercise, would it be possible for your lab, you know, if the Knight Foundation were to make some introductions, to do an experiment in working with some newsrooms and opening up a window into the public sphere, you know, of using social media as a way to listen to voices and write stories around the election campaign, you know, with that, uh, with that uh, new lens. Um, and so we said we would be very interested in doing that, which kind of takes a step beyond a typical academic lab in that we weren't just you know, doing the research, but actually would have to develop a new muscle to be able to deploy some of that research in relatively quick turnaround and be able to translate uh, machine learning and data and analytics into stories, uh, which was not our job. We would work with the newsrooms, but we would have to uh, be able to develop the right kind of interface. So we did that. We, we uh, partnered with the Washington Post, and then several other newsrooms uh, worked with us over the campaign cycle. Really directly growing out of that, we started to see the value in having this kind of um, at-scale listening capability that could help journalists in newsrooms understand certain dimensions of what was happening in the public sphere and understanding public opinion in ways that polling and, and the other tools that you know are at the disposal of journalists may not completely um, cover uh, sort of cover the needs and I think you know again there were many surprises in store for us as, as we entered the, the election cycle coming out of the elections there's a pretty broad recognition it's not that you know polling is broken. Uh, I think that, you know, some people might say that. I think that's going too far. But the fact that there's something incomplete, that there's a kind of understanding gap that many journalists, many pollsters, and, and many of us who were reading the news, trying to decipher the polls and square that with what was playing out in the elections, the way our team started thinking of that is that there's this understanding gap. And one way to address that understanding gap is to get better at listening and to be able to kind of map what is happening across different, you know, what we, we started seeing as we, we analyzed networks of who was talking about the, the elections, that there were these really segregated sub-networks. Uh, you might call them cocoons or even sort of tribes. And uh, it's not surprising that you have, you know, different clusters of people who have similar ideas and thoughts. But the level of isolation between groups was, um, you know, our network 
visualization started to draw pictures of this kind of understanding gap and has motivated the creation of Cortico, what we felt really could bring some some value to kind of creating a healthier public sphere where I think we have unhealthy levels of, you know, hyperpolarization and hostility and kind of this isolation right. between groups that I don't think there's any silver bullet, but in Cortico, what we're trying to do is take some of the ideas, some of the algorithms, some of the experiences from working around the election cycle and saying, how do we on an ongoing basis now create a, a platform or a, a kind of a set of tools and services to help newsrooms that want to kind of develop a kind of deeper understanding of what's happening? And, and we have a couple of activities that we we think will be valuable, one we call mapping. So just this idea that there are these tribes or cocoons and that we're often trapped within one worldview. And this is true of our own team, by the way, and it sort of you know, personally right. drove us to want to um, be able to understand what that bigger picture looks like. So there's a kind of mapping and tracking of, of tribes or cocoons. That's sort of one activity. And a second is to then be able to surface voices, surface stories, surface concerns from these different groups that if made available to people from from the other side or other sides uh, could actually build bridges to realize, hey, although I, I was vaguely aware of that other group and I thought I had nothing in common with them, when I hear that person's story, that resonates. Like, I've experienced something like that. And maybe life is not so different over there as I, as I thought. And so this notion of kind of rebuilding common ground by mapping and by surfacing in order to create bridges, um, that's the, the concept behind Cortico. Um, and, and we hope, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to kind of prove that out, that we can do this in, in a way that's meaningful and impactful. But that's what we're setting up to do. What's well, a big goal to really change the way the discourse is? I mean, you're taking on possibly, you know, the number one, problem right now in you know political discourse in america one of the things that we keep seeing is this kind of the influence of you know bots you know questionable accounts etc on social media how do you take that into account when you're mapping things out you know we have not in our lab explicitly looked at what's happening with activity with bots. But it's interesting. We've done a couple of studies, one that is um, in uh, review right now for publication. Um, so I uh -huh. can't get too much detail, but I'll just say one thing, which is we were looking at, we've done a series of efforts in analyzing how rumors spread through social media. And we've been using you know Twitter as one of the uh, platforms where we can study cascades of kind of retweets and so forth. And um, we have looked at to what degree, um, kind of systematically across a, a broad swath of rumors, bots have played a role. And in, in our analyses, and this is a very general, I'm not talking about a specific area, but most of the, um, uh, the cascades that we were able to um, uh, study, bots played a, a small role. That's not to say they don't play a role in other contexts, but there's a lot of properties of how rumors spread, which is really just reflecting kind of human behavior. And we're more likely to repeat something if it surprises us. There's certain emotional responses to a piece of content that'll lead us to share, which, which we see sort of systematically. All the things I, I mentioned about cocoons and networks uh, and sort of the tribal structures around the elections, again, because we weren't trying to study the role of bots uh, to the degree to, we, 
to which we could, we filtered out not only bots, but other kind of large organizations and sort of institutional accounts so that we really, to the best of our ability, tried to focus our attention on individuals, individual human beings and okay. uh, the, the tribe structures and so forth that we're able to visualize uh, were after that filtering. So I, I, I'm aware there's a lot of attention uh, currently on bots. Um, it turns out just our work, we were always, because we were trying to understand human behavior, we're actually um, yeah, focusing there. One of the projects you did more recently was with Politico, and you kind of showed the polarization after the Charlottesville protests and violence. And kind of, I've seen this before. I think the Wall Street Journal did something like this too, where you had like, you know, the left and the right reactions on, you know, social media, how people reacted on different sides of the spectrum. And I think like we see things like that and we see, okay, this is proving what we kind of already know. There is this polarization and it's showing us both sides, but I guess, how do you get that next step? Like, how do you actually break people out beyond just kind of seeing that it exists? You're talking about actually taking the next step and somehow showing people on one side of the bubble something from the other side or breaking through in some way. How do you do that? That Politico story is an example of what we mean by uh, mapping. And you're, you're absolutely right. The uh, red feed, blue feed that Wall Street Journal did, I think, was also in that same category. You know, what we did uh, with Politico was to take a specific event that everyone, you know, was following and sort of understood, just realizing, you know, for that same real-world event where the objective facts are being questioned, I have these two very different views. And I, I think that Politico did a great job in themselves not taking sides, but just saying, look, there's actually two very different ways that this is playing out. And to us, it was also very interesting to look at the comments by readers at the bottom of that story. And this is um, maybe not universally true, but I would say a majority of the comments, it was driving a kind of reflection process of uh, people who clearly didn't agree with one view or the other, uh, still engaging and just commenting on uh, just the very fact that there are these two views. Um, so I think it's one thing to be generally aware there's people who you totally don't agree with. It's another to um, even find a way to write a story that allows you to see, you know, see these two points of view. So I think there's some some value there. I think that this next step, getting someone to see the other side. I guess the short answer is, I don't know, and I'm not sure anyone knows the answer to the question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you said earlier, well, well, that's kind of, that's sort of an ambitious step. You're going to go and you're trying to solve like, the whole, I might be coming across as sounding too naive now. We, we don't expect, first of all, alone to go out and do this. So it's very important that we build partnerships and, you know, little old Cortico, even if it were to go surface some interesting stories that have the potential to to bridge tribes, uh, we have no reach. We have no way ourselves to have impact. So it's critical that we have the right partnerships. We are very interested in the role of local news and uh, creating more responsive local journalism, responsive to concerns and voices um, that are underheard you know, at a, at a local level. Um, we think there is a lot of potential for leveraging the kind of technologies we know how to build essentially listening technologies to tune in not just to Twitter but other signals that may allow a otherwise under-resourced uh, newsroom or even individual journalists to have a sense of uh, what local concerns are and actually we have some very early prototypes of such tools that we're starting to 
quietly test what's uh, in, in, a, in a local news um, context, which we're very excited about. You know, one in- interesting thing about local concerns, kind of uh, kitchen table concerns, is that some of the things, some of the issues that might be most difficult to bridge that dominate national and international news coverage are, are probably not the things that are going to surface you know, at the local level. Or you're, you're trying to yeah. deal with uh, everyday life at home. Um, and so I think the, the kind of natural tendency to put issues or topics into whether it's, you know, red or blue, or there may be other dimensions um, that are significant now, a kind of institutionalist versus insurrectionist dimension to um, where people sit politically. Some of these degrees of polarization, I, I believe, are lessened when you are focused on local issues. So there's something important about local. And then it's also just being careful not to be overambitious or unrealistically ambitious in what it means to build a bridge. An extreme is, oh, once you see the other side, you know, tribal divisions dissolve and we realize we're all just one. Okay, that's one extreme. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, some are a little more modest is to say, oh, okay, you know what? I, I absolutely still don't agree with your, your tribe's point of view on X, Y, and Z. But hey, there's like on these maybe unrelated fronts, we actually have some things in common. We're actually both dealing with the same you know, opioid problems in our communities. And although there's a lot of things we have different, we actually have a, a shared concern, a shared problem. And boy, we'd love to have an exchange of, of trusted information for, for what to do about that. The, the more I think about grassroots uh, networks and that focus on local, the more optimistic I get in identifying voices and then identifying stories and concerns that build common ground. So I think the more you, you sort of look at what's happening in Washington, what's happening in the, in the sort of most polarized uh, quarters, head on, try to address things there, you might be up for a, uh, an impossible challenge. I think there's also just the reality, and, and we're well aware of this in you know working with media companies, that polarization can actually be good for business. That's right? true. So it's, it's, there's a lot of um, a lot of challenges here, um, but that's not every media company's business model. Uh, it's, it is reasonable to say that the evolution in our communication technologies and the communication sphere has been a factor in, um, in changing things. And if that's the case, um, well, who's to say that we're done designing communication technologies? Um, so if it yeah. has the power to influence things, um, we should take lessons learned and think about. Uh, how to continue that evolution. Well, thanks a lot, Deb Roy with Cortico. We just got a million dollars, I think, from Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, and now this $900,000 grant from Knight. So we're definitely going to be watching and seeing how things play out for the nonprofit startup. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the MediaShip Podcast. A big shout out to our special guest, Deb Roy, Jason Alcorn, and our producer, Jefferson Yen, and associate editor, Bianca Fortis. Check out the latest news and features at MediaShip.org and follow us at MediaShipPod on Twitter. Our past episodes are on SoundCloud. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. We'll catch you next week.